Hello, welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano. This episode is going to be the final part of our discussion on the different comic book ages. This time we are talking about what we feel comes after the Bronze Age. And by we, I am talking about John M. Wilson, W. Blaine Dowler, and Brian Zeno. As well as myself, of course. Now just remember, this was a recording we did over a year ago from my now-defunct Pop Culture Palace Presents podcast, just in case there are any dated references. I really enjoyed this conversation we had, and I felt it deserved more attention, hence why I'm putting it here. Alright, we're going to put a promo in now, and then get back to the conversation. In the 30th century, there are many dangers, among them hostile aliens, mad sorcerers, and guys in funny purple robes. But the worst of all of these would be continuity reboots. Having a problem telling which boy or girl or lad or lass is which? Which karate kid are you actually reading? Or what is the deal with all those legionnaires in Superman's books right now? We can help you with that. So climb into the time bubble with Paul, Darren, Matt, and Scott every Monday for in-depth analysis of the Legion of Superheroes mythos, including retro reviews, current Legion comic chat, and more fun than you can shake a Martian ice cream cone at. Legion of Substitute Podcasters, forged in the present by stories of the future. www.legionofsubstitutepodcasters.com all right, so this is when it starts to get nebulous now because usually it says after that is the modern age, but I don't really think personally that it's all been just one age since then. There's definitely been, I think, at least two distinct ages maybe or more since the end of the Bronze Age. So let's go back to Blaine. Uh, what do you say happens after the Bronze Age? I'll use the label the modern age because that's the one in the vernacular, uh, again marked by another relaxation of the Comics Code Authority in about the mid-1980s with your Watchmen and your Dark Knight Returns and that push. And going well into the 90s where you had the advent of digital coloring through Malibu comics, they found a way to cheaply and quickly reproduce way more colors to give the artists far more flexibility. And then I would say that that age continues through the bankruptcy of Marvel and the rebirth of the industry where you know, that whole problem they had in the 90s where basically they were they had convinced a significant portion of the buying market that comics were investments rather than pieces of entertainment, which broke the economic models for retailers, publishers and readers in a way that the industry almost didn't recover from. And then I would sort of mark the end of that with the recovery from from that bankruptcy chapter Avia Rod taking over and right around the year 2000 when now Joe Casada's editor-in-chief in Marvel and we're starting to see more than just Batman and Superman make it to the movie theaters with, you know, Blade, X-Men, Spider-Man coming out and all performing above expectations one after the other. You know, Blade not making quite as much money as the other two, but making way more than any industry analyst predicted it would make. And I, I think that that started a new age of comics, but in terms of, yeah, I mean, we, we can get into that as, a, as another later age, but I think that's the point where we can clearly say, yes, that was one era of comics. And I think it, we may still be too close to it to really look back with the proper view and perspective from history to say, yeah, that other age that would have started around 2000 and 2002 where does that really end and you know what is going to replace it to define the next chapter that's something i don't know i can put a definition on yet brian well the rest of the story as it were for me is going to be clearly be uh influenced and i'll just tell you this up front by the fact i mean i'm a lifelong marvel zombie and I have, over the last few years, I have been with great relish and enjoyment, vastly increasing my knowledge of DC and other, and other stuff as well. But for the most part, I mean, I started reading comics on, on my own dime in 1985 at the age of 13. And uh, since then, like right up until this day, like Marvel still is something of a default for me. And I just tell you this story by way of saying that what I'm about to say as my conception of 
post-Bronze Age history is very much colored by that Marvel default. So please excuse that and take it with a grain of salt and all that good stuff. But for me, I conceive of it as um, something that I alternately call the late Bronze Age or the Claremont Age. Because you've got, you've starting with Giant Size X-Men number one in 1975, which yes, I know technically Claremont wasn't actually involved with, that was Len Wein. But the point is those X-Men and then the Claremont dominance of that right through him leaving X-Men in 1991. And the various other things that happened under there, like for instance, the Frank Miller run on Daredevil or secret, the various Secret Wars, or Crisis on Infinite Earths, or Marvel's New Universe. All of these various experiments and, and developments and incremental moves in different directions, those all happened uh, in a sort of same, like, that, that still feels like one period to me. And so since that coincides with the start and end of Claremont's run on uh, the X-Men, I sort of think of it as the Claremont age, or you could call it a late Bronze Age. And then you've got the 90s with all the pouches and the, and the, and the Jim Lees and the Rob Liefelds and blah de blah blah And, uh, um... You kidding your Jim Lees? Right, yeah, you know. And then, as as Blaine pointed out, and I think it, it's a very astute observation, it is a real point of demarcation and uh, watershed moment when Bill Jemis bought Marvel and took it out from the the bankruptcy horror that it had been going through for so many years at that point, and Joe Casada. Uh, took over as editor-in-chief, and all of a sudden you've got the Marvel Knights stuff. You've got Brian Bendis's run on Daredevil. You've got J. Michael Straczynski's run on Spider-Man. You've got all the like this amazing stuff that's happened still then that is still happening that, to my mind, amounts to what is a new, true golden age of comic book storytelling, and it's just as good over on the DC side and on and at Image and in all these other publishers as well. So much good stuff happening uh, since 2000, basically. So um, those three broad uh, strokes are pretty much how I conceive of the comics age, post-Bronze Age. Oh, and Brian, real quick also, because um, piggybacking on what you both said, 2000 is also when the X-Men movie came out, which is definitely, I mean, Blade was the first one, but... For the most part, most people thought it was just a vampire hunting movie. No one's really going to think that's a comic movie. But when you get X-Men coming out, that's definitely a movie based on a comic book for anyone who has no idea of comics. Right, And that's also 2000, same year. Yeah, it's a real moment where you can see a break between what came before and what came after. All right, uh, John? You know, it's interesting because we started out this discussion... And I really thought we were all going to come together on the beginning of the Golden Age. And we didn't. We had, like, widely varying opinions on what constitutes the beginning of the Golden Age. And I really thought I was going to have an unusual and totally different understanding of how the Bronze Age went away and the comics industry moved on. And here I am just echoing my friends. You know, we, we link the Golden Age to the 40s. We link the Silver Age to the 60s. The Bronze Age started in the 70s, but it continued to grow and flourish and take its ideas that it did in the 70s and refine them and do more of them and better with them in the 80s. So that the 80s was was still a Bronze Age, like, like Brian said, maybe a late Bronze Age, but it's still doing the same kinds of stuff, just better. And, you know, the monsters and supernatural and horror that was allowed to flourish in the 70s um, was brought to a fine art in the 80s with the Swamp Thing comics and the Sandman comics, the uh, the Hellblazer comics. Um, you had the British Invasion bring a lot of those sensibilities into the U.S. And what you did start to have happening, though, in the mid-80s was the idea of comics as collector's items and crossover events where you had to get issues it's no longer, a, oh, I'm going to go get the next X-Men because I want to read X-Men. It's a, oh, I, I think I need to get these other comics, too. That's weird. And so that to my mind, some of those elements, oh, also in the art styles, a push of artists being 
as important to the story as riders, which had been a thing in Marvel since at least as far back as the 60s, because the, the, the quote-unquote Marvel method was that the artist would tell the story. Well, now the artist's names are becoming more important than the writer's names in some cases, especially mm-hmm. in the planning offices, especially in the X-Men offices. Mm-hmm. Um, sexualization of art is another thing oh. that rose during the 80s. You know, you have uh, Frank Springer with Dazzler. You know, you have depiction of females in costumes... Have you ever seen a woman in spandex? It does not hug every curve, except for the ones that jut out the most. It does not curve around every nook and cranny of the body the way the superhero comics started to do as you move towards the end of the 1980s. So to me, a lot of those elements happening uh, in the mid to late 80s set the stage for what I consider the fourth age of comics, which is the 1990s. The launches of all these new other companies like Malibu, Valiant, and especially Image. The departure of several big artists because they were big artists. Tom McFarlane, Eric Larson, Rob Liefeld, um, Mark Silvestri, other people. No, Silvestri didn't lead Marvel. Um, but all the people who, who came over to, to start Image. And the idea of flash over substance. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that if we could just make the comic look cool, and, you know, the rule of cool definitely stands for something in entertainment, especially in comic books, but it's not the only rule you can stand on. And there was an yeah. era there where that was very much what was going on. And, and that's why the nineties tend to get a bit bad rap because there was a lot going on there that was new and different and energetic, but people started to see through the illusion at the same time, you have other really good stuff going on. But some of that really good stuff also characterizes the 90s, and then we started killing our heroes. The death of Superman, unlike many people believe, is not this big marketing gimmick that was supposed to um, be hugely publicized. It, it, was, it almost slipped under the radar until a few months before Superman 75 came out, somebody saw the preview for it in a comic store and leaked it to the media. So a very small amount of time before Superman 75 came out, the media found out he was going to die, and they blew it up. And Batman was already in the throes of his Nightfall storyline whenever that was going on, and so his back gets broken. Um, they did it to Green Lantern. They did it to all these other characters. So the 1990s, was there was a lot going on that was new and that was different in a variety of ways, and the digital coloring helped bring it all to vibrant life. So that's, to me, the big next age of comics after the Bronze Age. Um, I hear a lot of people draw a line at Crisis and Infinite Earths. To me, that is a plot difference. That's a continuity difference. That's not an age of the comics industry boundary line. Um, and then after the 90s, I think the rise of superhero cinema cannot be ignored. It's possible that we might be able to call the 2000 to 2008 stretch as being similar to the 1956 to 1961 stretch as being like where this new era we're in is taking form. Like a transition era. Like a transition era from, from X-Men and Spider-Man getting their launches, the superhero cinema industry, people realizing this is not something that we have to laugh at or something we have to like sort of wink and nod at, but something we can actually take really seriously besides just Batman. And even Batman was only taken seriously in one of his four movies. So the idea we could enjoy superhero comics as actual entertaining adult fiction that's also suitable for kids, more or less. And that culminates in, I think, the launch of Marvel Studios and the launch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and which brings us to, to the age we're in right now. Things I like about where the comic industry is that I think characterize a current age, I think the superhero cinema outshining the superhero comics... I think superhero comics also being outshone by creator-owned comics. Maybe not in the numbers and the sales charts, but certainly in the critical reception. Um, I think a return and a resurgence of readership that is not quite straight male. Mostly the male part, but also just like there's a more, a greater diversity. There are a lot more women reading comics now than there were 20 years ago. And that's great. Uh, there's a there's a push for diversity. There's a push for creator-owned comics. And your fights and tights 
is 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 a staple of the industry, sure, but it's not really the leader of the industry, at least from a critical perception anymore. I think I've rambled about seven different directions, so I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> uh, if, if if I could, real quick, it's yep. just because because we do we do keep bringing up you know these demarcating lines, and I agree with you, uh, John, that the crisis on infinite earths isn't really the demarcating line that a lot of people think it is. But but then I don't not sure you want to listen to me about any of this because I was just thinking about something that is, and I think I may be alone in this. For some reason, again, as I mentioned, I my first time reading comics under my own steam was in the mid eighties. And I remember in eighty seven when John Byrne left the Fantastic Four. And right around that time, I think we also had the fall of the mutants around that time. And right around that time, the something's changed in the Spider-Man. I think the Falco Friends era ended or something. Anyway, my point is, but right around the time that those Marvel 25th anniversary uh, special corner box logos were all the rage, as soon as those ended... Nothing ever seemed the same to me in comics again. And I drifted away from them for a while because they just seemed like something had changed and I wasn't enjoying them as much anymore. And I may be the only person (laughs) to think that the end of the Marvel 25th anniversary logo and John Byrne's run on Fantastic Four was some sort of major historical milestone. But uh, I just wanted to throw that out there as a really weird example of how we think about these things. Well, it's at least a personal milestone. Mm Mm-hmm. When I look at books, especially when they start getting to the 80s, it definitely, no, you can call it either late Bronze Age, or if you want to keep going with the metal thing and go to the Copper Age, it definitely does feel to me like it's something different than the Bronze Age books. Plus, for me, in that early 80s, especially like 81 to 82, it definitely seems to me like it's a new, at least either a secondary era or a brand new era, because you have a couple things happening, not just in the stories themselves, but you have the independent books. I mean, there always were some independent books beforehand, but for the most part, they were hard to find, or these were like the Robert Crumb books and, you know, the Freak Brothers that were sold in head shops. But now you have, like, Pacific Comics, Kamiko, First Comics, you know, uh, you know Matt Wagner's Grendel and Mage, and um, these other, uh, several Serapis was in the late 70s, but still, that was going on. But, like, you have this rise of these independent books, and that's also because of the rise, even though they had started before, but the real rise in the 80s of comic book shops, of the direct market. And that definitely was a big change for comics. So to me, like starting getting into the early 80s is definitely a different, makes it a new era because that changed everything. Because now you start getting these books now, instead of being on newsstands, they're starting to go more towards now direct market. Plus you kind of have a rise of what I thought was like uh, comic journalism. I mean, again, you always have something that started earlier. Comic Fire Sky was in the 70s. But you had all these comic magazines about comics in the 80s. You had Amazing Heroes, Comic Scene, Letter of Comment, and these were all things where you could find out what was going to be happening. Comic Buyer's Guide, that was my favorite. So, like, you, to me, that 80s is a different, like I said, it can still be called a late Bronze Age, but it's definitely not the same as the Bronze Age proper to me. That's definitely a difference. Uh, the 90s, starting, I start with, with basically saying more or less Spider-Man 1, the Todd McFarlane one. You have... Mm. And I, I like this name because I've seen some, a couple of people use it, and I find it fun. The Chromium Age, which basically is the bulk of the 90s, where <laughs> you have the comic book, spec, you know, the boom. And, I love that. Yeah, you have the boom and bust of the speculator market. You have all these artists not just becoming popular, but superstars. I mean, Rob Liefeld had his 501 Jeans commercial on TV. So how long have you been drawing comic books? So I was about seven years old, little kid. What did your parents think about it? They hated it. They hated it. Oh, yeah. After I, I got a job and they saw that you can make a living out of third day, you'll hear no complaints anymore. And you created X-Force? Mm-hmm. So what is this drawing on? This is the Spike Man. And what's this right here? This is the camera on top of your head that will record the wrongdoings of others. So Rob, have you had any formal art training? No. Just uh, a lot of imagination, I think. Wait, so, so I say it and then look down? Or just open it and say it? Fly button? You have all the fun with the con- with the cut, all the fun they did with the covers with die cut diamonds on the front. We're gonna put blood on there. There's a bullet hole in Protectors Number Five from Malibu, and all the independents were getting into it too. Not just with the covers, but all the fact that before you had these independent books, like I said, starting out, you know, like Turtles, for instance, in the '80s, 
But now they're all were doing their own universes, you know, Ultraverse, that Chaos had their own universe, Valiant had a universe, CrossGen was starting in that time period. Or oh, I loved CrossGen. Or maybe they started, two, I think they started 2000, so it'd be a little bit after that. But yeah, you know, yeah, they were 2000s. Yeah, because I've been starting to reread my early CrossGen, so that's right, duh, I would know that. But so that's like a different age. And then once you start getting basically to 2000, that's why I start considering the modern era. For many reasons, like you said, John, you have, you know, not just the movies bringing this up to a public consciousness and becoming more important, unfortunately, than the comics, but bringing more, you know, much more focus on diversity, but also social media and its effect on comics and the way they're created. Not saying right or wrong, I'm not trying to take a side on this, but look what happened with that Batgirl cover from a couple of years ago with uh, the <laughs> Joker there. I mean, that would not have been pulled for the reason it was pulled in 1985. But you have the social media, and that definitely has a huge effect now. So I was, like I said, from 2000 on, I consider that the modern age because really, the last 20 years or so, it's kind of hard. You know, until you get past that a bit, it's hard to say what was the age until you're at least, I think, 20 to 30 years past it. Yeah. And then you go, that and, was an age. And I'm glad that you brought up the rise of the direct market because I think that's another influence, especially when you get into the 90s, where they were basically replaced by the direct market. So it wasn't just, now you can go to a dedicated comic shop. I mean, there was a time when really the independent comics and Dazzler were the only books that you had to go to a comic shop for. You could still get the rest off the spinner rack at your local convenience store. But then in the 90s, pretty much every major comic publisher except Archie said, no, we're going Diamond exclusive. So then the product, in terms of the monthly periodical form, then became a comic shop exclusive. And I mean, to get it into the hands of other people now in the 2000s, with the, you know, as the movies rose, then the collected edition trade paperback presence in bookstores has been rising. And that's what I hear from people, you know, working in the comics industry. When a new movie comes out, that's where the bumps happen. You don't get huge bumps of that title from your local comic shop picking up with where they are now. You see the bumps in the collected editions at your local, you know, chapters, Indigo, Barnes and Noble, whatever your local bookseller is. Yeah, and makes sense. that's where that's going. And even the people I know who are dedicated comic fans, a lot of people I know have shifted away from the monthly periodicals. And now they're picking and choosing which trade paperback collections they're going to get to get the complete stories because it has changed to long form storytelling. You know, whereas in the we talked about the golden age, very little went past one issue. In the sixties and even into the seventies before the rise of the direct market, with rare exception, most stories they kept at two or three issues because they couldn't guarantee that the store where you bought part one was also going to carry parts two and three. It wasn't and, until the direct market where that became something they could bank on. And the biggest rule breaker in that regard, Marvel kept getting flack from their readers and, and letter writers saying, why do you keep doing these continued stories? I can't get all the parts. Yeah. I mean, people could go back and point to the Kree Scroll War saying that was nine parts. Yeah, it was published in nine, in nine parts, but you go back and read it. It's two or three part connected stories that just flowed from one to the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it wasn't until... I think Marvel's Contest of Champions was only three issues, but that was a dedicated miniseries, not even an ongoing. That started in the 80s with some experimentation with publishing, Crisis on Infinite Earths being the first major crossover. I mean, not the first one, period. There were, you know, the Avengers Defenders War bounced back and forth between the two books. Oh, that's, hey, Al, Al, John, and I don't know anything about that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, that's the thing I was going to say was like the big exception proving the rule in the 70s with that Avengers Defenders War was like what six issues of you know between two titles yeah there, there was also uh, three issues that bounced back and forth between Daredevil and Iron Man so they were there's definitely precedent it's just not Excellent. nearly as common as it would become until the 90s when your Superman books had little triangle numbers on it so that you knew what order to read them so when you went out to buy this week's Superman issue to get the next part of the story, you know which part that was because it would go from action to Superman to Man of Steel and keep rotating through those. And oh, I think yeah. that was a huge part of the 90s was the the fact that they were now banking on that storytelling. Like John said, this is the era where now you feel obligated to buy a title you weren't otherwise buying to get the whole story. 
Crisis on Infinite Earths itself isn't a huge demarcation line aside from the fact that, yeah, that showed the power of crossovers because anything that had that inf- Infinite Crisis or Crisis on Infinite Earths label got a bit of a sales bump. So then they started planning for that. And that was the thing in the 90s. It was what is this summer event? And the summer events are still largely running today where you'll have that four to six to, to ten issue miniseries going through the middle. But... I mean, I think that seven-issue Civil War miniseries ended up at 135 issues or something by the time you count all the tie-ins. Yeah, look at yeah. Try and get all of Blackest Night. Only oh, jeez. Which I've got. That's That was actually the last event where I bought every issue in the crossover. Oh, me too. <laughs> Just because... I mean, like Brian, I'm a Marvel zombie, so a lot of those stories were the first, my first exposure to DC or to some of those DC properties. And this is too, I know black is night review. Isn't really the point of this podcast, but I just found because of the structure, every crossover was man. Remember when so-and-so was still alive and they were romantically involved with that person over there. God, that must be tough. And then, you know, who's coming back and how they're going to deal with it. Like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it was really one story structure. With like wow. copy paste, you you could almost write the crossovers by doing it, just plugging into your word processor and going search and replace these names with those names. I have I have only recently begun reading the Jeff Johns uh, Green Lantern run from its beginning in uh, Green Lantern Rebirth, and I ha- now having heard you say that, Blaine, I think I'm going to give all but the core miniseries of Blackest Night a skip when I get to it. Uh, I, I, the core is. You know what? Let me go back and look at it because of all like the 30 or 40 tiles it crossed over with, I would say there are four or five that are worth reading. Oh, okay. But you don't need to go through all 30 or 40. Okay. (laughs) So I I would do the core. I would do like the Green Lantern and Green Lantern core. And I want to say that the Wonder Woman tie-in miniseries was pretty good as well. That was sticking out of my head. So maybe it was. A big part for me was I wanted all those damn rings. And I have, <laughs> and I still have them all. I'm looking at them right now. I got all my rainbow rings, plus my Legion Flight ring up there. So, yeah, I'm a child. Don't care. But yeah, I think that's that's something else. I think that set at least the late '90s apart was the decision to go Diamond exclusive as the only real comic distributor, and sending everything just to the comic shops because that is really the decision. That led us to the point we're at now where 100,000 copies of a Marvel or DC title guarantees you a spot in the top 10 sales for the month. You know, on 200,000, you're pretty much guaranteed number one, whereas Archie Comics stayed in the mass market and the grocery stores, and they went through Diamond but refused to do it exclusively. And now Archie will cancel something that's not selling 500,000 if it's carried by grocery stores. Hmm. And which is why Archie is now carrying for Marvel their new Digest books that you can buy in the supermarket now because they mm-hmm. have that and Marvel didn't. They're pulling it off. And that's, I mean, we could talk a little bit about Archie if we want to, It's, but I think we want to stay focused more on the ages than the comics. But Archie, you can look at that and say how much of this is creative decisions and how much of their business decisions setting up the ages. Archie weathered the storm in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I find that there's with Archie, I can point to new stories and old stories because they made conscious shifts in the artwork. But an Archie story from the seventies and an Archie story from the nineties can be very difficult to distinguish if you're not extremely familiar with the company. True, you almost have to look at the background stuff, fashion or yeah. uh, slang, what they're trying to use, and that's be, might be the best way to figure that out. Yeah. I'm wondering if we're going to eventually look back on this and say like that real shift to day and day or day and date digital distribution, if that's going to have a mark too. Hmm. is, uh, I mean, DC likes to say that they were the, the first major publisher to get there. Archie actually beat them by two or three months, <laughs> but yeah, DC did it with the new 52 and a lot of fanfare. That's when they went day and date that's and right. proved that, that yeah, you can do that and still managed to support the retailers at the same time. And it didn't take Marvel long to catch up with that. That was, I think, the biggest fear that they had was because, I mean, if the comics 
distribution system. Previously, they said it was too complicated because there's all multiple distributors with multiple channels. But if it's like a food chain, what we've got now is, you know, it's like cows and grass, right? It's a very linear food chain. And if one leak breaks, the entire ecosystem collapses. And I think that's what they're they're trying to do is, you know, they don't want to harm the retailers who have been in their lifeblood for years and have put poured everything they've got into this business. But at the same time, from what I hear, I mean, I'm not a retailer myself. What I hear from the retailers is that because Diamond effectively knows they have a monopoly, they've allowed certain aspects of the operation of their business to lag because there's no one else to go to. And, you know, depending on the quality of your rep, you may or may not have a good experience as a retailer working with Diamond. And as somebody who's been worked at two different stores over time, yeah. Yeah, you can have times where you can have them help you get stuff right away, and there are times you're like, you ain't getting it. Yeah, I I can tell you just from my experiences, I've been regularly buying up Thunderground in St. Albert, Alberta for years because Roy Kim just runs an awesome shop. His understanding of customer service is phenomenal, but I can tell you without him needing to tell me every single time the diamond rep was switched because there's this era and there's that era and there's that era just in what happens and what it takes to, to fix issues. And I know it's not Roy because if you go to him and say, like, if you bring an issue to his attention, he will bring you to his computer where you like submit the request and everything through the system. And he will say, okay, this is how we fix it. I'm fixing it now. Click, click, click. They're done. You know, we'll get that. I'll let you know as soon as that comes in. But the rest uh, is out just, of his hands. Yeah. But you will see him. He will sit there. And, you know, mistakes are rare. Because, like I said, he runs a good shop. But he's very detail-oriented man. But that's part of the issue that retailers are dealing with now is there is a monopoly in the distribution. Mm. And monopolies lead to laziness because you don't have to compete. Whatever. There's no place else for you to go to, yeah. so they're not going to lose the customer. Either deal with it or stop selling comics. It's really the only two choices there. But yeah, I mean that's the one thing part of that because of the rise of the, uh, like you said, the rise of the uh, direct market led to that. And that's I'm wondering, yeah, if digital will be like viewed as a whole new era. And that's one thing I always thought like they should do with like all these Batman Arkham games and all these uh, when the movies come out they you know when you buy them they should always include a free digital code because to get the big problem with the comic shops I mean obviously I love them I worked in part two of them but the problem with comic shops is that people have to go to the comic shop if they're not going to the comic shop they're not going to buy comics there at least if you give them a free digital code people have free you have a pretty good chance of somebody going, all right, I'll try it, because it's free. And it's there in front of them. They don't have to go anywhere. They sit on their butt on their computer and type in a code and get it. Herman asked me at work recently how to, you know, how he go about helping his son's interest in comics. And I was like, well, um, do you have a tablet? Because that's going to be a lot easier than trying to go to a shop. Go to this website, download the app, and browse and buy what you want. Digital comics, while they... While, while their impact on the retail market is, is debatable, I don't know if it's as minimal as, as some people have said, but, but it's certainly something to get people who didn't normally go to the comic shops into reading comics more. All right, time to cover our feedback. And this time we are covering feedback for episode 106, which was our crossover episode. Mephisto vs. the Podcasters Year 2, in which we covered Sandman Issue 20, Facade. The post about that episode on Facebook was liked and shared by Jeff and Rick Present, Michael Lane, Hal Jordan, Alex Traham, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Pat Sampson, Gene Hendricks, Tim Price, Derek William Crabb, Mike Peacock, John M. Wilson, Bob Fisher, Michael Calloway, and Joe Sedano. On Twitter, the post was liked and retweeted by Viet Huynh, Low456, David Finn, EMP plus EMX, Last Sons of Krypton, Connor McKenna, Into the Night, Attilan Rising, Ghost Rider Podcast, Nexus of All, Lord Metallic, Into the Weird, 
Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, Trekker Talk, Tim Price Podcrasher, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, Sentinel Liberty podcast, John from Married with Comics, Ryan Daly, Adriano, Doc Strange, Random Sandman, Hicks, and Relatively Geeky. On Tumblr, well, no one liked the post on Tumblr. Oh well. But it still means we do have a few people who like our Tumblr page in general that we want to thank. So this time we are thanking Sonic5467, Suckplay69, Valiant Zine Elemental Turtle, I think that's what it is. Close enough. Thanos of the Eternals and White Knuckle Duster. All right, you want to hear your name said here? Very simple. Just like and share the episode on some type of social media. Facebook, well, just look for Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box. You'll find our page. You can like it. On Twitter, we are at Adam Thanos Pod. Tumblr, it's resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. And of course, you can always leave an iTunes review because that is awesome. Or send an email, resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. And don't forget, I am planning on making the final episode of the year some outtakes and also emails, depending on time, of course. Don't know exactly when I'm recording this, so make sure you send them in by at least December 1st. And as long as they're in by December 1st, I will definitely read them. Okay? All right. My name is Bob Fisher, and I'm the host of the Superman Forever Radio Podcast. On the Superman Forever Radio Podcast, I talk about Superman from 1938 to present day. And in 2018, we celebrate the 80th anniversary of the Man of Steel's first appearance in Action Comics with a full year of new episodes, more episodes, plus new features like The Adventures of Superman When He Was a Boy. Superboy is coming to the Superman Forever radio podcast. Also, the Superman Forever Roundtable Discussion Group, where I gather together some of the best Superman podcasters around, and we talk Superman. So if you want to know why I've been a Superman fan for over 60 years, point your favorite podcatcher to the Superman Forever radio podcast at supermanforever.com. All right, well, I think we've gotten to the end of the ages, so one last thing I want to do before we finish off, start with Blaine. Uh, off the top of your head, at least, because, I mean, it might be hard to say, but what's your favorite age? Um, I don't know, it's about 12. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make that joke. <laughs> Damn it. But no, I mean, I mean, to some degree, they say, like, that, you know, the golden age of entertainment is when you were 10, and... For me, that's part of it. So with, with the terms we've been using here, the Bronze Age in the 80s, so the, the late 80s, early 90s are where I really got into comics. In the 80s, it was mostly G.I. Joe. The 90s is where I really got into the shared universe through New Mutants, X-Factor, and New Warriors. So I do have a soft spot for that. And you know, when people say the 90s were terrible, the first 50 issues of New Warriors by Fabian Nicieza and 25 issues of art by Mark Bagley and the next 25 by Derek Robertson are my go-to to say, no, it's not all terrible. Yes, there were some terrible trends, mm-hmm. but if you know where to look, you can find some pretty great stuff in every era of comics. But yeah, to me, that the late 80s, early 90s, whether we consider that part of the same age or different ages is something we've already had the debate about. That's where... I've got the most nostalgia for the stories. Okay. And no, you're right. I mean, despite my joking calling it the Chromium Age, there's a lot of amazing stuff in the 90s. You just have to look a bit. But I mean, like you said, that New Warriors book, um, just real quick to say, Starman, Sandman, Preacher, uh, Hellboy starts that in the 90s. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff there. Hitman. But anyway, so it's John's turn. The, the idea behind Blade is, is you know, your, your favorite is... is where you grew up. No, I've, I've explored a lot of ages. I've read a lot of golden age. I've read a lot of silver age. I've read bronze age for characters that I like 
the 80s is still an era that I'm, I'm sort of still mining slowly. I've read a lot of Spider-Man and X-Men from that era. That's about it. I'd like to read more. But when I think of my favorite comics and like the things I really, really want to read, I think of stuff from the 90s. But you know, I also think of a lot of current stuff. Gosh, I'm a terrible question answering person. Um, <laughs> no, it's fine. There's there's so much good comics being made out there. So many good comics being made out there right now. <clears throat> I, I I'm reading Saga. I'm reading The Walking Dead. I'm reading Sex Criminals. I'm reading the the relaunch of the Valiant Universe. I'm reading so many fun good solid entertaining books so in one respect my favorite era is like right now <laughs> but if i'm looking back in the past and history then yeah um circa 1990 you know maybe 89 to 93 that's kind of like my sweet spot for for what i was growing up with and that's kind of what i think of in my head when i picture good comics i think of those comics but yeah i like it all too so there's that. All right, Brian. Uh, my answer is very similar to John's. I have well, a lot of. <laughs> that's interesting because mine was kind of everywhere. <laughs> no, well, uh, the crux of John's. I, sp- I sp- after the last couple of hours, I feel like I, I've I've gotten okay at speaking, John. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but what I was going to say is uh, to echo a, a thread that, that was in John's answer. I have a lot of nostalgia for the mid 80s um, because that's when I started reading comics, specifically the Spider-Man and X-Men uh, stuff of that era, because that was very, very much a thing that I was into at that time. And it takes me back to those heady early days of, you know, going to Heroes World and buying for 65 cents a pop, you know, buying Web of Spider-Man or whatever. But the truth of the matter is when it comes down to what are my favorite comics, what are the ones that I go back to and reread once a year, once every two years, what are the ones that I am most likely to ask um, my loved ones and discerning fellow nerds to read? That's all stuff that's coming out now. That's all stuff that's come out pretty much in the last 15 years or so. I'd have to say to sum it up, uh, right now, probably my favorite era. I think we are genuinely living in a new, go- new true golden age of comics, and I'd say right now is when my favorite comics are being made. All right, so I guess we're more or less in agreement on that because my problem right now is that there's too much stuff that I'm looking that I'm going, ooh, I want to get that and I want to get that, but I don't either money or time is always a, is more of the problem than finding good stuff now to read. My list of things I want to read eventually is too long. There is way too much awesome stuff I want to pick up on. But but, I, but at least if looking back at periods, at least recently, and obviously there's a pretty good reason why, I really have grown to have a huge affection for the Bronze Age proper. Just grown to have such an appreciation for those 70s era books. Maybe a bit more of the Marvel than the DC, but it just seems like they were just... All these fan creators were so trying to put so much relevance in their books and put actual um, real-world events and life and time, that it almost feels like, to me, a lot of times reading these, like, these characters continued aging and going, and they're not the same ones in the 80s because these guys got old and older now. You know, like, these were, you know, they existed in the 70s and of the 70s. I don't know, it's just, I'm really enjoying, probably because of doing the, sorry, the Warlock podcast with all those uh, Bronze Age books, but I'm just having a lot of fun delving into those. But yeah, I love every age. I love stuff from every age. It's always good stuff. This show can now be found on Stitcher. In case you don't know what Stitcher is, Stitcher is Radio On Demand, a free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discovered from 20,000 others. Available on iOS, Android, Nook, and iPad. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. Before we close out, I want to change a few things I said before. In listening to this episode as I'm re-editing it, I've been listening to our conversation again and been thinking more about this, and I have a few changes I want to make in my opinions. So working backwards, the chromium age, basically the 90s. I'm going to push back when I think that starts. It goes back to what we had said about the silver age. I think it was John that said it. Could be wrong, but I think it was John, where he said 
that, yeah, we use showcase number four a lot to start talk about the beginning of the Silver Age. But really, that comes out and not much else changes for a while. You know, it's not like Showcase 4 comes out and all of a sudden everything starts popping up right away. It takes a little while. I mean, Green Lantern doesn't come out for a few years anyway. Or Just League of America or the Marvel stuff. So, we'll get to that Silver Age in a few minutes. So, going by that, yes, Spider-Man number 1 is a definite signpost of the change that's coming in the 90s. But I don't think that's really where it starts. So, yes, Spider-Man number 1, X-Force number 1, definite signposts towards the Chromium Age. But to me, I'm going to say now the Chromium Age starts in August of 91 when X-Men number one comes out. That is the beginning of the Chromium Age to me. All right, going back a little further. The Copper Age, the 80s basically. A lot of people still consider that the Bronze Age. That's fine. I don't. I think, like I said, my, I agree with everything I said before still. It feels definitely different to me than the Bronze Age. Now, doesn't have to be called the Copper Age. We don't have to stick with the metal thing. I just can't think of a better name right now. But I don't want to call it the Late Bronze Age, which I tried doing a few times in the episode. It just makes it too confusing if you're comparing it to the Bronze Age or even just talking about it. It's the Late, you know, the late Bronze Age. Oh, you mean later in the Bronze Age? No, the, the Late Bronze Age as opposed to later in the Bronze Age. It's just too confusing. So it has to have a separate name. I'm not tied to the Copper Age. It's just a placeholder name right now. I would love it if one of you had a better idea for a name for that. So please, I said the email address before, or on Twitter, whatever, write in. If you have a better name for it than the Copper Age, just don't put the word bronze in there. Finally, going back further, the Silver Age. Like I said a few minutes ago, doesn't really seem to start exactly with the Flash. That's just kind of a signpost that the Silver Age is coming. To me, then, when the Silver Age really has started, like there's a lot of Silver Age stuff happening now, is when the Justice League starts. So Brave and the Bold 28, December 1959, that to me now is the start of the Silver Age. The true Silver Age. So that kind of extends the Atomic Age from like basically 49 to 59, and that kind of fits because it's kind of a rise and fall and then rise again age. You know, they have the original heroes and type of comics you had in the Golden Age go away in the beginning of the Atomic Age. And we get a new types. We get a lot of romance comics, funny animal, and then, of course, EC with all of their horror and crime. And then you get Seduction of the Innocent and the beginning of the comics code and all that all crashes. And then the industry leap, limps along for a little bit and then starts building itself back up again. And that's when we get the Silver Age. Those are the changes to me. So basically, it's what? Golden Age is beginning of Superman. Yeah, it is. that's the beginning of the Golden Age. To, I said it was, I think it was somewhere in 49. I think it was might have been the last appearance of The Flash or the last Captain America story. I'm not sure which. Go re-listen to the episode. I don't remember. <laughs> and then that starts the Atomic Age until 59 when Just League of America starts. And that's the Silver Age to... I forget, six, uh, 70, I think it said, was the beginning of the Copper Bronze Age. And that goes into 81. And then we have the Copper Age. That goes into 91. And then the Chromium Age into 99. And now it's the Modern Age. Until we have another 10, 20 years passed. And then we can see what this age would have been. All right, that's it. Again, please send me your thoughts. Do you have a better name for the Copper Age? Do you disagree with me on anything, or agree with me, or agree with me partially? What are your thoughts on these ages? Please, write in. Let me know. I'd love to hear what all of you think. Hi, this is Chris. And this is Brian. And we are the hosts of Inner Demons, the Ghost Rider podcast. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast apps for all your Ghost Rider needs. Right on. Well, before we end, anyone want to plug anything or tell people to go anywhere? That sounds wrong. But yeah, you want to put, you want to tell someone to go somewhere? <laughs> go right ahead. I'll tell you where to get off. No, wait, that's. Uh, Brian, do you have anything you want to say?
Uh, I got nothing to plug, nowhere to, and nowhere to tell anyone to go. Just um, I, I will be continuing to turn up on a variety of Al's podcasts. So anything that has Al's uh, name on it, keep listening to it. I like that, John. I am not going to talk about plugging anything or getting off, um, but you can follow me on Twitter at John Reads Comics. There's no H in John Reads Comics. And Blaine. Uh, all of my podcasts can be found at Bureau42.com. There's a few that have been announced and are wrap, some that are wrapping up shortly, new ones coming, some with firm dates, some with less firm dates and voices that will be familiar to people who are just listening to this podcast we did now. Ooh, mysterious. Mm. Thank you all for being on this. This was definitely a lot of fun, at least for me, and definitely went places I wasn't expecting, which is a good thing. Because otherwise I would have been too boring. Right. And you could have done this yourself. Exactly. <laughs> I could have just used, I used voices. You have puppets. Hmm. Puppetry and audio podcasts. <laughs> yeah, see, that, that Al earlier said that it wasn't just he was crazy. There's other human beings here that he's had that experience where you know he goes back to edit and he's like, why is there only one voice? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and S. Brian from anyone who knew me in school, most of them would believe that. <laughs> yes. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended, or happening, or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peacelovproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page.